Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, and welcome to the Muslim Matters Podcast. I am your host, Zainab bint Yunus. Today's episode is about a touchy topic, the portrayal of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, particularly in light of the Hamlin University controversy, which we'll explain in a little bit more detail in a bit. Today's guest is Dr. Jonathan A.C. Brown, who is Al-Walid bin Talal Chair of Islamic Civilization in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Dr. Brown is a Muslim academic with a rich list of publications, including the books Misquoting Muhammad, The Challenges and Choices of Interpreting the Prophet's Legacy, Slavery and Islam, and Islam and Blackness. He has published articles in the fields of Hadith, Islamic law, Salafism, Sufism, Arabic, Lexical Theory, and Pre-Islamic Poetry, and is the Editor-in-Chief at the Oxford Encyclopedia of Islam and Law, and is also the Director of Research at the Yaqeen Institute. Dr. Brown, welcome to the podcast. Assalamu alaikum. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Hamlin University controversy. Is it art, history, or Islamophobia? So just to set the stage for the listeners, what happened at Hamlin University? And correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm missing anything here, Dr. Brown. Uh, but essentially, at Hamlin University, an adjunct professor, Erica Lopez Prater, lost her job after featuring depictions of the religious figure, Rasulullah, despite her class being focused on Islamic art. Uh, so she's a global slash art history teacher, and she did provide warnings in advance that she was going to present images that might make students uncomfortable, specifically images of religious figures such as Rasulullah, and it was all meant to be in a very respectful spirit, spirit of academia. Again, art history. So this is literally a piece of art from specifically Muslim history. And to be clear, I believe this was uh, illustrations of Rasulullah uh, created by a medieval Muslim Persian artist. Now, unfortunately, the Muslims in that class chose not to leave and then became very upset at the at this display of the images. And they went and complained. And although the professor did apologize for, you know, any offense taken, for any hurt feelings, she still lost her job. And there came from that just tons of media the controversy over this, you know, debates amongst Muslims in particular. And while this is one specific incident that happened recently, this issue of portraying Rasulullah has come up in a variety of contexts over, I don't know, last couple of decades now, right? So that's what we want you to talk about, uh, Dr. Brown. Just your brief take on this, and then specifically starting off with this whole issue of depicting Rasulullah how have Muslims historically dealt with this? How has it played out in our history? How does it play out now? Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, I'll answer that question, but I think first it's uh, the the kind of, to, to, we need to kind of uh, disentangle three different issues that are, uh, that, we, that confront us with this Hamlin controversy. Uh, the first one is, Kind of what, you know, what 
Muslims slash Americans should expect from university education, you know, sort of higher education, uh, you know, secular higher education. And, you know, to what extent uh, should Muslims expect uh, to be presented with material that is, you know, comes from outside their sort of faith positions uh, as Muslims uh, and whether or not they should demand that or kind of uh, accept it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Because that's the first question. The second question is, you know, what do uh, students do or, you know, anyone who feels offended or, or slighted, uh, how do they deal with that in this day and age and especially in higher education? And the third question is the one you talked about, which is, you know, how do Muslims, well, actually there's, there's really two questions. So one is like, what is the Islamic position on depicting the prophet or viewing pictures of him? And second, and, you know, maybe more a theoretical one for purposes of Muslims living in the West or, or even globally, right, is uh, how do Muslims um, deal with diversity within their own tradition when thinking about what is like acceptable or not acceptable for Muslims, right? So if you say that, I mean, you can just imagine, right? If you say that in Islam, uh, it, it is, you know, it would be inaccurate for a professor to say that in Islam, homosexual relationships are permitted. Uh, that would be an that would be an inaccurate position in the sense that you know the vast majority of Muslims throughout history would not have said this was allowed in the Sharia. But of course, uh, there are some Muslims today who say it is, and you know Muslims have done this, uh, whether or not they, it was allowed or not, did it in the past. So the question is like you know to what extent uh, should you know should Muslims sort of accept a representation of that diversity in somebody talking about their religious tradition? So these are uh, a number of, of questions. So you you talk, you asked first about the issue of depicting the Prophet, uh, The So there's not really specific rulings about, in, there are in, in the last couple of decades, but I mean, prior to essentially the, 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 the late 20th century, as far as I know, Muslim scholars didn't really talk about depicting the prophet Ali Salam. There's there's one there's two reasons for that because they dealt with this issue essentially with two other under two other issues. One was whether you can depict any creature with souls. Any uh, this is based on uh, sometimes people say any creature, but definitely any creature that has a soul. This is based on hadiths, you know, very well authenticated hadiths in Sahih Bukhari. And other collections, uh, one in which the uh, Prophet doesn't, Aisha has a curtain that has like an image on it, um, some surah, some picture on it. And uh, the Prophet sort of doesn't want to go into her chamber with this on the door. And it says, you know, angels don't enter. Uh, Gabriel told me that angels won't enter a house that has either a surah, like an image, or dogs in it. The second one is the the Prophet says that if you uh, the people who who make images who kind of create things with surah right um, and this is usually understood as either a picture painting you know a tapestry a sculpture or what's called a relief like a sort of a sculpture that's kind of little has a bit of three dimensional has depth to it but is also kind of affixed to a wall or some kind of backing. That these are all understood as su- as surah, that anybody who who makes these surahs on the day of judgment they will be asked to uh, 
breathe life into these things that they thought they created, right? So these are the, the main sort of fiqhi anchors for the rulings that would say, and this is, you know, the, the vast majority of Muslim scholars would agree that you can't, you should not create a depiction of a anything with a soul, whether it's a picture, painting, wall hanging, uh, sculpture, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting, right, because there are uh, some... Dis, dis, dissenting opinions, and and you can see where they come from because you have other very famous, well, maybe not as famous hadith, but also in Sahih Bukhari, a story in which the prophet's wives and the prophet are speaking about churches in, in Ethiopia. By the way, this is also very interesting because it shows you how aware people in the Hejaz were of kind of life in, in custom in Ethiopia, just across the Red Sea. So they uh, what they, they talk about is how there were these churches or sort of shrines to saints. What would happen is a sort of a holy, a saint, Christian saint would die and people would kind of draw a picture of that person by their grave. And prophet says, like initially this was to kind of commemorate the person and, and, and up and, and, and place them on a pedestal as an exemplar, right? Someone who you should imitate and admire. Place of honor, basically. Yeah, exactly. And then he sort of, he approves of this. But then what happens is that it it kind of turns into an icon that people start to to use in, in worship, right? So you see that there's, it's almost like the, 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 the picture is not bad in, in and of itself. It's when it, it's the fact that it's a slippery slope to sort of worship of an icon or incorporation of icons. Right, into- essentially it's a direct link to shirk. Yeah, exactly, right? Or slippery slope, right? So, but I mean that 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 painting that that hadith doesn't detract from those other hadiths I mentioned, which are pretty clear prohibitions. Now, uh, there are a couple of interesting dissenting opinions. One is from a scholar named uh, Al Qasim bin Muhammad. I think he died around 750 of the Common Era, and what he says is that it's it's only makruh or disliked to have a paint picture or an image that's in like a wall hanging or on furniture or something. Another scholar, a, a tafsir scholar, he dies, I think, in 987 common era, so 377 Hijri. His name's Abu Ali al-Farisi. In his tafsir, he talks about how images are only prohibited if they're going to lead to idolatry. Like if, if they're going to, you know, so you can imagine if you have oh, an yeah, image. I get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah if, you, if you can just imagine, like you have an image of, I'm just going to think of something really stupid, like- um, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> Yeah, Alvin and the Chipmunks or something. I mean, I guess you could worship Alvin. I'm trying to think of something even worse. You know, <laughs> let's say you have a. I'm going to get in big trouble for this. But let's say you have like a, a sculpture of a butt or something like that. Right. right? The rear end. I mean, chances are someone's not going to worship a butt statue. But then again, there's you some pretty, there's some pretty weird temples in the world. So you know, you never know. So that's his opinion. And then Al Qurtubi, the famous jurist, and we all know his tafsir. I think he died in. Uh, 1272 common era. He's from originally from Spain, but he settles in Upper Egypt. And he says, in so in the Quran, you have the story of uh, Suleiman alayhi salam, uh, kind of in the court of Suleiman, he has jinn that are basically making Im- surahs for him. They're making statues and images for him, mm-hmm. certainly statues. And so what uh, what uh, what um, Kortubi says is that this fact shows that it's that making these things in and of themselves is not prohibited, is not kind of wrong in and of itself. Now, uh, what happens in the, the the late 19th and early 20th century is that people like 
um, Muhammad Abdu, who dies in 1905, famous kind of Islamic modernist scholar, mm-hmm. Mufti of Egypt. He uh, writes a series of fatwas on artistic representation where he he basically argues that he kind of goes back to some of those dissenting opinions I talked about and that, that idea of the the slippery slope. And he says that the prohibition on depicting images is only if they if there is a risk of them becoming idols. You know, today uh, no one is going to you know you're not going if you have a if you have a statue of Ramses or a statue of King Tut or something that you're selling in Cairo. Uh, no one is going to go and start worshiping that. That's what he mm-hmm. said. So basically, he kind of well, that's pretty relevant to his context yeah. too. Yeah. So okay. So then um, now I'm just giving you opinions. Uh, right, now right. Uh, the the second the second issue that this falls under insulting or depicting the prophet would fall under is insulting the prophet Alayhi yes. Salam. And there it's very clear. I mean, it's very clear that Muslims are not allowed to insult the prophet, even light slightly insult the prophet Alayhi mm-hmm. Salam. And, uh, you know, if you do so, then you're not, you know, you would, you, you see, you essentially cease being a Muslim, right? Because you're insulting, you're belittling the person who you rely on to bring you God's revelation and explain mm-hmm. that revelation. Okay. So that's not really debated. So what happens like when there's the question of this movie, The Message in, in 1977, the famous movie, probably we've all seen it, uh, it, it, it depicts, it, it's about the life of the prophet, Alayhi Salam. You don't have the you know, Muslim scholars, especially I think Majma al-Fiqhi al-Islami in Mecca, the um, you know, Muslim Islamic Fiqh Academy, I guess it would be called. They you know give a fatwa that you can't depict uh, the Prophet Islam or the you know leading companions like the four mm-hmm. rightly guided caliphs, uh, because this is a this is a there's a risk of belittling them, right? That there's there's almost nothing you can do that would give do justice to these people. So in effect, you're going to be belittling them. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I mean, so that, but again, that that really comes under the the the, the rubric of uh, of insulting, not under the rubric of depiction. Because when you have something like a film or a photograph, although there is de- debate about photographs, but generally the opinion is it's not creating a surah, an image, because you're just capturing light, right? You're not actually making anything. You're just capturing light that's bouncing off something in on it's film. A, it's a reflection of something Allah's already created. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, okay, so that's the, now, that, that's the, the legal rule. So there's the really, you know, not, if someone says that, most, that Islamic law prohibits the depiction of living things or certainly human beings, that's a pretty good generalization. Yes, there's going to be, uh, some dissenting opinion on, on this, but certainly in the Sun, in Sunni Islam, this is by far and away the majority position. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, that being said, right, you have uh, uh, two other things you need to take into account. One is that Muslims, Muslim artists, and especially you know they're they're generally in the pre-modern period, Muslim artists are like other artists producing works of art for for patrons. So how do they make a living? Uh, some rich person, a nobleman or a ruler or something says, you know, you're such a great artist to produce such or some wonderful picture and I'm going to sponsor you and you're going to praise me or something like that or mention my name. And so um, the early, you can go back, I mean, you go back to like the, 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 the palaces of the Umayyad, some of the surviving palaces like the palace of Hisham at Khurbat al-Mafjar in, and you see they have straight up statues of the caliph, like holding a sword of women with cleavage showing of all sorts of stuff, right? Uh, mm-hmm. They have statues, they have paintings, they have, uh, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Uh, so, you know, like Mel Brooks says in 
history of the world part one, it's good to be the king. You know, you can do whatever you want. You want to have a, a, a statue, you can have a statue. All right. Is it halal? No, but you know, what does anyone know? But who cares? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So uh, now what happens in in terms of the, the depiction of the prophet, there's a little bit of debate about are some of the early Umayyad coins depicting the prophet? I don't think they are. I think they're depicting the caliph, but definitely in the uh, late 13th century, that's the first very clear, clear image we have. You know, something that's it's not debated. It's an image of the, a painting of the prophet Muhammad. It's in a book of Persian poetry. Uh, and then the fa- the one that the, the the professor actually showed in the class at Hamlin is an er- a late 13th, early 14th century uh, image from the Compendium of Histories, Jamia Tavarikh, which was edited and kind of sponsored and you know supervised by the Ilkhan vizier and scholar Rashid al-Din, who died in 1318 of the Common Era. And there's numerous pictures of the Prophet in this compendium. And they're all very, you know, th- these are very respectful pictures, right? And he looks kind of like a he looks sort of like a Mongol Mongol person. I mean, that was just the artistic style. So he doesn't even he doesn't right. even look Arab. Um, and and this is very typical for painting in the kind of Persianate area, whether it's the Ottoman Empire, Iran, North India, Central Asia, from roughly the 1300s to the the, the 1600s and 1700s. Is that uh, the kind of artistic style? Is that everybody basically looks Chinese or Mongol, even mm-hmm. if so? It's kind of you know, it's, it's sort of silly. I mean, you're not actually trying to represent the person accurately. Of course. Um, and he in this picture, he does not, his face is just, is completely unveiled. He looks like a, it could be any character. Then what happens is in the, the kind of 1400s and 1500s, you have this move towards uh, having these halos, like kind of fiery halos oh, around. Oh, is that when the, the flame kind of, yeah. and the veil kind of kicks in? Yeah, exactly. And then in the, the the 16th century in Iran, you begin this, they begin this tradition of having actually like a, a hijab, like a, a veil over the prophet's face. Mm-hmm. And then the even his family members like Hassan, Hussein, Ali, Ali uh, they would have also like ha- flame halos around their head. Uh, so that becomes an artistic style. And I should also add that... It, and I'm not actually sure how this happens. Someone who knows who's more knowledgeable than me needs to explain this. But uh, in the Shiite tradition in Iran, uh, somehow, and I, they don't seem to have any problem depicting the prophet. And uh, you see this going back uh, several centuries. But in like the 19th century, you have these incredible pictures that depict like the day of judgment happening and you just see everybody like martyrs and people getting judged and the prophet and the imams. It's, it's really intense. Uh, and then, but today in Iran, they, 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 I don't, I mean, someone, again, someone else explained this, but they really don't seem to mind at all because I remember a few years ago and someone should find this on the internet. I think they actually had an official competition in Iran to see who could do the, most accurate depiction of the prophet based on like the the helia and the shama'il and the hadiths oh, that describe him so it was actually like almost like a sketch artist right um, right but in iran like you can walk down the street and you'll see for sale pictures and rugs with images of um, wall hangings with images of uh of ali of hussein of the prophet of the all the 12 imams 
So you, this is very normal to see in Iran. So it's like their tradition diverges significantly from ours in that sense. Yeah. All right. So that's an interesting overview of the different Fiqhi opinions and historical precedents, essentially. And I find it particularly fascinating, given everything you've mentioned, a lot of Muslims don't know these things. Now, I don't know the details, but I'm vaguely familiar with it just because I'm a little bit of, uh, you know, I dabble in Islamic history for Fonzies, so, you know, very casually. But, you know, these things come up, so you're generally aware, like, oh, yeah, this happened. Is it halal? No. But did it happen? Did Muslims do it? And they do it in good faith, yes. Uh, and one of the things that struck out for me in this whole uh, university um I don't say scandal, but issue is that the students, I think the MSA students said something along the lines of like, we never heard of this before. We'd never seen it before. And they were very shocked by this. And there are a lot of Muslims, of course, like non-university educated as well, who are also very, very unaware of this. And they assume that any portrayal of Rasulullah is automatically insulting and offensive. And I guess that leads to the next issue of there have been many times that illustrations of Rasulullah have been weaponized against Muslims by Islamophobes. So things that come to mind are, you know, uh, the Danish cartoons, the whole Charlie Hebdo issue, uh, Pamela Geller and her whole like, oh, draw the prophet cartoon challenge or something it was um, quite a few years ago in the States. And obviously those incidents evoked significant agitation from Muslims across the world, and rightfully so, because, you know, the ghira that we have for our messenger, um, the fact that this was done very specifically to insult and to provoke, what would you like to essentially tell Muslim students, or Muslims generally, like, the difference between these two scenarios, really. So, I mean, at first, I just want to add that, you know, these images like the Ilkhan, the, the Jamia Tavarikh image, and the ones produced in the Ottoman Empire in Central Asia, these are all produced by Sunnis. So I want to be clear, like, this is not okay. just um, a Shiite thing. It, it becomes it's, it becomes much more prominent in, in, Iran, in Shiite Iran, Safavid Iran, and post until today. But uh, a lot of this is done by, by Sunnis. Uh, by okay. Sunni rulers patronizing Sunni artists. Okay. Um, now, that doesn't mean it make it right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's, you know, we can't just say that everything, everything is done by Shiites. Right. Uh, the, the, okay, so the, the second thing I'd say is that th this brings us to that first issue I brought up, which is like, really, what is, what are we dealing with when it comes to university education? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, just from the perspective of a university or college or, or, um, they're not, they're not beholden to following the dictates of the Sharia right now. That's because first of all, the vast majority of students aren't Muslim. Uh, second of all, the vast majority of students, there's tremendous diversity amongst students. Even if most students are Muslim, like you can't expect the non-Muslims to sort of accept as just by uh, without any kind of evidence why a Muslim sensibility should be indulged. Right. Um, the, the second thing is that, um, so, you know, if, if they're teaching the history of, of art or history of Islamic civilization, they're just going to do that from their, whatever perspective that professor has. Now that professor could claim to be quote unquote objective. And I'm just telling you what happened, quote unquote. I don't necessarily buy that type of argument because everybody has an agenda. Everybody has a point mm -hmm. of view, but if somebody says, you know, I'm going to 
show you really famous pieces of Islamic art. Or, you know, like, for example, let's take that. I remember when I was teaching in University of Washington, Muslim students would come up to me and complain in my Islamic civilization class, like, why are you talking about the disputes amongst the companions after the death of the prophet? And you're saying that, like, some of them didn't agree with, you know, Abu Bakr being the caliph. And, and I said, like, this is, no, I mean, nobody debates this. Like, no, no Muslim follower debates this. So, uh, you know, you, you can say that you think we should have a certain perspective. But then I asked this Muslim student, I said, okay, so you're telling me I should do this. But there's, let's say there's Shiite Muslim students in the class. And they're going to come and say to me, um, you know, why are you saying that it's not totally clear that Ali should have been the caliph or something? And which Muslim student am I supposed to listen to? Like, who gets to define? I mean, I, you know, if right I, opinion. Yeah. So if I say like, okay, well, I'm just going to teach teach Islamic history from my perspective because I'm a Sunni, then let's pretend I did that, right? Let's pretend that somehow all the students accepted that and the non-Muslim students were fine with it and the non-Sunni students were fine with it. Now I have another issue, which is there's diversity within the Sunni tradition, right? So let's say we come to that, that question of de depicting uh, living things or things with souls. I can give them the majority position, but then I, if I'm going to be a good scholar, I'm going to also tell them these dissenting positions. Right. Or, okay, so that, let's just say I'm, I'm teaching fiqh. So I'm going to teach them the majority position. I'm going to teach them the minority position. I'm going to tell them what the evidence are. I'm going to say what I think the stronger position is. I'm going to allow them to have their opinion. Okay, but they're still going to be exposed to the minority position that allowed some kind of depiction. Now, That's let's say outside of even sorry to cut you off, but yeah, so this is outside even of you know a secular secular academic setting. This is standard for I would say pretty much any fifth class that will say unless you're sticking to you know just your madhab, but even then within a madhab there are diverse opinions and there will be discussion of those opinions and why they came about and so on and so forth. There's no way really to hide all the yeah. other perspectives. Exactly, right? So then, of course, if you're talking about, I'm going to teach a class on Islamic history, you know, even, so I'm Muslim, I teach a class on Islamic history. I love Islamic history. I value it. I, I, I think of it positively, right? But you can't ignore things that are there that you might not like, that don't go along with what you think should have happened. So even if I think there never should have been a depiction of the Prophet Muhammad, there were, and they were they were produced by very reverent Muslim scholars. Now it's important. People ask me like, I don't understand, Professor Brown. How can you say they were pious, reverent Muslim scholars if they produced these pictures which violated the clear dictates of the Sharia? Well, guess what? Uh, there's a lot of variety in the world, and people can have a lot of opinions. So there's this actually one Sufi scholar in the 900s. He talks about how the you know. You should look at pictures of, you know, saints or pious figures like the prophet in order to orient yourself towards them, like to, mm -hmm. to make them centers of your focus. Now, it's at, and it's I remember reading this last semester because my students asked me about it. You know, these uh, kind of Javanese shadow puppets that yes. are famous from Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So they don't have like the, the Islamic art museums in Kuala Lumpur, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, Indonesia. They don't actually have these in the Islamic art museums, but these are actually Kind of, they were prominent parts of Muslim like uh, court performances, like where they would perform these like religious stories oh, using okay. these. And it's funny because going back to like the 1600s and 1700s, uh, we have re reports about scholars asking, being like, like, uh, how are you? Is are you allowed to have these? Like, 
to mm -hmm. look at these things because these are depicting of you're depicting people and you're creating these images. And it's the, the famous story is that this one kind of Sufi scholar responds to that jurist and says, you know, you're missing the point. That's not the issue. What the issue is, do you understand the meaning of the story, the kind of highest and spiritually enlightening meaning of the story? Now, what, you, what you'll notice about both the stories I just told you, both, you know, the, the scholar, Sufi scholar from the 900s and these, the, 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 the person in the late medieval period talking about the Javanese shadow puppets, is neither of them actually address the issue, right? Neither of them right. actually say why they're allowing you to uh, draw a picture of a person when the prophet clearly said you're not allowed to do that. Right. So, you know, look, uh, people are complicated. That doesn't mean that they're not pious. It doesn't mean that they weren't. They were clearly revering the prophet, right? So these these images, I mean, it's uh, Imam Shadi al-Masri had a really good point about this when he's talking about this Hamlin thing. He said, you know, these are beautiful pictures. And there's that the, the professor showed. So it's entirely possible that somebody who doesn't know anything about Islam or even someone who doesn't like Islam would see these and be like, these are beautiful. And that could actually, you know, improve their opinion and maybe make them, you know, in increase the likelihood of them inclining towards Muslims and Islam. So mm -hmm. these are a, a million, a light year away from the Charlie Hebdo pictures or the, or the Danish cartoon pictures, right? Which are just mm -hmm. faulting. Now that gets to the, an, another question, which is, you know, people say, Professor Brown, do you show pictures of these pictures of the prophet in your class? I definitely show the pictures from Rashida Dean and these uh, these pictures from the Ottoman period and Central Asia, because these are not only important pieces of Islamic art. So I show them on my Islamic art in my Islamic art lecture. Right. Mm -hmm. But also, if you're dealing with a class on Islamophobia and I teach classes on Islamophobia or Islam in the West, you also show the pictures from Charlie Hebdo because. Mm -hmm. People, I mean, you can't just say like, there's an, a really insulting picture of the prophet and just trust me on it. It's really insulting, right? These are, you know, you, you have to know what you're dealing with. You gotta with. lay out the facts essentially, yeah. no matter how distasteful and not horrible. I mean, and similarly, like this is the same thing Muslim scholars did. Like, for example, the Quran says, mm -hmm. like these, the, the unbelievers are saying X about the prophet. They say he's yeah. a pope. They say he's a, he's a, he's getting this from a, some, some other person's giving this information, right? They say he's et cetera, et cetera. Like, so even if you were to read the Quran, you're literally re reciting and repeating ins insults directed at the prophet. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting when you look at like, especially in the Hanafi school of law, when they talk about and what instances in which non-Muslims, like Vimis living under Muslim rule, if they insult the prophet in the Hanafi school of law, that's not a that is not automatically like a death penalty offense or it, it's actually up to the ruler to decide what to do with the person. Why? Because it's issue instead. Yeah, because that person by not being Muslim. So the Quran allows them to stay on their religion. Right. right? From Surah the Tawbah. It allows them if they pay the jizya, they can continue being Christian or Jewish or Zoroastrian or whatever. Mm -hmm. But they're. If you're if you know about Islam and you're living amongst Muslims and you still don't accept the prophethood of, of Muhammad Islam, you are either saying he's a liar or he's crazy or he's or our information about him is unreliable. All of these are insults, right? So what Abu Hanifa and his school say is like their religious belief, which they have been Quranically allowed to keep, is more insulting than what they've said about the prophet. Interesting. Right, so they're yeah, they're and I get that, that they're, tracks basically. Yeah, they're kufr, and they're and their refusal to refusal to believe is the is a much bigger insult 
than like them saying, you know, some sentence that, you know, some insult about the prophet, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to remember that even if you were to, to just recite the Quran, you would be repeating an insult about the prophet, right? Even if you were to uh, just, you know, t- talk about how Muslim scholars dealt with non-Muslims and people insulting the prophet, you're going to repeat and find this material, repeat it. So you can't like any serious study of the past, even if it's done from a, a purely Muslim perspective, like in a medrasa, is going to repeat and, you know, uh, regurgitate insulting material. That's why, like, for example, one in, in Hadith, the uh, uh, science of Hadith, you're allowed to repeat and reproduce forged hadiths if your purpose is to identify them as forgery and to talk about right. the issue of forged hadiths, right? You don't just say, there are forged hadiths out there. We can't say what they are. We can't give you examples because it's, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. what these students were asking for, and of course, the funny thing is, this was an online class. Like, you can imagine some student, the students are like sitting there looking at their computers. The, the professor on their syllabus wrote that there is going to be images of religious figures. This, the professor gave them a trigger warning, told them, if you want, you can leave the room, look, turn the, you know, turn the screen off or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They didn't do it. I don't know. Maybe they weren't paying attention, which is probably <laughs> the case with most students, right? But, yeah. and then this, if, you, if you see the, the, the student, when she, the, the one who filed the complaint, when she's talking at the CARE Minnesota press conference, she's, you know, outraged that, she was forced to see a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. She, well, first of all, I mean, I've showed these pictures in my class. I never give a trigger. Tr- it didn't even occur to me to give a trigger warning because yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, kind of old uh, school. You know, that's going to tie into like the next uh, side tangent that I'm going to bring up because this relates to me to the coddling of the American mind. I haven't read the book, but I'm familiar with the discussion. So continue with your point, though. Go on. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think that you're. Your point is fine uh, to to move on to, which is to say that okay, there's there's one there's one angle where you could say, look, uh, you know, people are babies today. Everybody is always being harmed. You know, this speech is harmful. I need a trigger warning. We all know this um, this debate, uh, so mm-hmm. I don't need to go too in, too far into it. And I, you know, I myself uh, definitely are on am on the side that people shouldn't be coddled. They need to be exposed to different opinions. And that you know, uh, a, an idea or a, 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 a you know a speech or an image, uh, really are can't really harm you. I mean, I don't think when you talk about harming students, him hearing something that upsets them, or comes from a different perspective, if if you say that's harm, then you end up in a situation where nobody can talk about anything that might upset anybody else. And in the then end, why are you even in school to learn anything anyway? Yeah, I, yeah, in the end, you essentially can't say anything because anything you say could potentially be harmful to somebody and you have a very diverse community. And by the way, nobody, there's no notion that someone has to objectively demonstrate that they've been harmed in this, in this way of thinking, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, all I have to do is say that I'm harmed and, and everyone has to accept that. So this is, it, it leads to, it's like a reductio ad absurdum. I mean, you reach the point where essentially no one would be able to communicate or express any ideas. And then education certainly becomes impossible. Now, somebody could say, oh, wait, Professor Brown, but, you know, um, we have a chance, Muslims have a chance to to kind of promote their values and to bring American society further in line with what we think 
how we think humans should act, which is that we think humans should venerate prophets. We think that they should not depict them, right? So if we can get, if we can make it so, uh, you know, uh, American universities do not ever show pictures of the Prophet Muhammad or never allow anything bad to be said about the Prophet Muhammad, would that not be a good development? Would we have not done, you know, Amr bin Ma'ruf and joining right in our society more broadly? Um, okay, fair enough, right? I, I I accept that, right? But there's, I'd say there's, there's two problems with that. You know, in fact, I'm not even going to go into the first one. I'll just say the second <laughs> problem is even, you know, even for, from that, taking that perspective as the only correct one, right? I would say that what do you do then about diversity within your own tradition? So right. like, let's say we're never going to, again, I think even let's say America, let's say America suddenly became a Muslim country. The Sharia is applied, right? Uh, everybody's Muslim in the country, right? There'd still be, I think, a reason to show the Charlie Hebdo cartoons because here you're, show, you're like, look, this is what other people are saying about the, the prophet that he's or saying about Muslims. How do we deal with this? How do we understand this? So um, you're not talking about then what your in-group is producing or saying some of us produce this image. Like these are other people outside who are producing from another place or producing these images. And you kind of have to understand them in order to understand what you're up against. The second thing I'd say is, again, even if everybody's following the Sharia, everybody's Muslim, right? You still have dissenting opinions within the Islamic tradition on the issue of depiction, and you still have Muslims who are producing these images in the medieval period. So you would have to be saying that these are, we're just not going to deal with our own history at all, and we're going to pretend it didn't happen. And I think that is uh, foolish because Islamic history is a repository of wisdom. And there's some, even when people are, are making mistakes, you can learn about how they make those mistakes, how they justify those mistakes, how those justifications, you know, what their what are their weaknesses. So you really, by shutting off even our own history from ourselves, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And especially if you're showing pictures that are nobody on earth could possibly say these pictures are insulting the prophet. They are they are absolutely reverential pictures. Okay. It's a good point or an interesting point that he made about even, you know, showing the Charlie Hebdo pictures um, and particularly within an academic context. And I think that's very important to keep in mind. This is not just, you know, displaying those images for the sake of provoking other Muslims, right? Just because or, you know, agreeing to um, or, or supporting people's right to insult Rasulullah, which unfortunately did happen in the Pamela Geller situation. Um, when uh, I think it was actually Linda Sarsour, unfortunately, who said, well, you know, we don't support this. We don't like it, but I will support because it's freedom of speech. We support their right to be able to do that, which is a different discussion entirely in my perspective. Um, But for Muslims in educational settings in academia, as you said, like this is a setting where we're supposed to learn, where we're supposed to be uh, exposed to information for a greater benefit. Like, why else are you there, right? And this is where I think the coddling of the American Muslim mind comes in. And not just American Muslim mind, but the Muslim mind in general, and particularly within uh, an academic setting. As Muslims, whether in the real world or academia, we do need to be more resilient. And just because we're uncomfortable doesn't make something automatically Islamophobic. And I think very unfortunately, you, slapping this incident with the Islamophobia label will actually negatively affect 
other cases of quote-unquote real Islamophobia, whether it's on campus or off. You know, it would be very different if this instructor had no real purpose, not even to be like, oh, this is what people have, uh, an example of how people have portrayed the Prophet but in an insulting way, the end. But really, if it was just like, oh, hey, guys, look at this kind of thing, you know? Yeah, this is a real tragedy. This whole thing is a tragedy. And so some people have written about how, you know, we have to understand the Hamlet incident events, the background of kind of anti-Black racism and Islamophobia in the Twin Cities and especially against Somalis. And yeah, I was going to bring that I, up. I, it's fine. I completely accept that, right? But here's the problem. By picking this, you know, people say, well, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Okay, but by picking this issue, which is so clearly not Islamophobic, right? No, I mean, even the university has now issued, the president and the board of trustees has issued yes, a just, just like last night or today or yesterday, I can't remember when, yeah, saying- yeah, sure. We, we were wrong in using the, the word Islamophobia. Like this is not Islamophobic, what, the, what this professor did, okay? So by doing this and by essentially like the, what Karen Minnesota was arguing was essentially that all of American society and certainly higher education has to, has to abide by Muslim sensibilities about art and depiction. Which and it's kind of is, ridiculous given the wider discussions and societal issues. Like this is really not it. This is not yeah. the mountain to, or not even the mountain, but the molehill to claim as a mountain to die on. Yeah, this it's not and it. it. And it is, it's just, I mean, it's ex, it feeds exactly into what the kind of Islamophobic right-wing talking points are, which is yes. Muslims are going to make you follow their religion, right? That's mm-hmm. which is essentially what CARE Minnesota is asking. They're saying, Everybody has to abide by Muslim sensibilities on this issue, even if you don't Karen believe it. National you ended up coming out and saying, you know what, forget what we said before, or like what Karen Minnesota said. Actually, no, this this was wrong. This was the wrong reaction to have. Um, and yeah, it, you know, it just really, really feeds into, as you said, already existing Islamophobic narratives. It's shooting ourselves in the foot. It just goes to show that people aren't going to take us seriously, you know, crying wolf, basically. And then look um, at look at all the look at all the coverage this issue has gotten. Yes. In in the you know kind of respectable center centrist media, in kind of civil liberties media, and then kind of right wing Islamophobic media, they're all saying the same thing. They all basically say this is ridiculous. This is insane. This is an insane situation. It's un it's un um untenable right it's uh unjustifiable and the you know the 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 kind of right the islamophobic perspective is see look how awful muslims are the kind of more sense or more sympathetic perspective is yeah these students had it rough but this is really unacceptable because this totally compromises academic freedom so what you end up having is muslims look like you know the 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 muslim who called cried islamophobia Mm -hmm. and instead of instead of these students saying okay here are like ABC things that have happened to us in the Twin Cities or on campus where we were treated badly because we're Muslim or we were treated badly because we're Black or we were treated badly because we're foreign or we were treated, et cetera, et cetera, right? Instead of doing that, which would have been really good arguments you know, for people doing something about Islamophobia or anti-Black racism or something, they end up saying something where even if you to listen to the students and care Minnesota's presentation, this is, they don't talk about it. They talk about racism and anti-blackness when they talk about how uh, people are opposing the university president, who is herself uh, African-American, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't, 
But it's not drawn to actual examples of how yeah, what really they're what they're talking about is this one hundred percent religious issue. It is one hundred percent. This is against our religion. If you do it, it's Islamophobic. They don't say we're being treated. People are being racist against us. Yeah, they don't say that. Yeah, uh, and I think it's very important for just Muslims in general to again be aware of this because how this was handled and how we choose to handle similar situations in the future is really going to inform very strongly how we are dealt with elsewhere. And I mean, I'm in school and I have conversations about Islamophobia on a fairly regular basis because I'm going to be going into something similar to social work. So, you know, community work, these discussions come up a lot. But there's a massive, massive difference between, again, identifying real Islamophobia versus well, I'm uncomfortable or this goes against Islam in some way. Now I'm going to make it everybody else's problem. And this is where that bit about resilience and not being coddled really comes in. Like if you're in a particular class, you know what the curriculum is, you know what the syllabus is, you know what's been and this particular example. Anyway, you've been given advance warning. Uh, toughen up, basically, is how I feel about it, because. What are you going to do in the real world where you don't get these warnings? What are you going to do in the real world where you cannot impose? And as you said, even in uh, an ideal Muslim state, we cannot impose certain things upon non-Muslims. And it's it's just an unhealthy take all around because it it does us a disservice by putting us in an even weaker position than we already generally are as Muslim minorities in the West, and particularly within an academic context. And unfortunately, there's lots of Islamophobia and Orientalism and racism uh, in an academic context, uh, in academic environments that are very difficult to call out even when they're explicit and clear. So to see something like this, to claim it to be Islamophobia when it really wasn't, and and then I, I really feel for the professor, unfortunately, who got fired over this, because it it does impact her really negatively. Imagine how she feels now about these Muslim students. And she's launched a lawsuit against the university, I believe. But all I can think about is this was really bad anti-Dawa. It, yeah, it's really depressing. It's uh, it's it's sort of, yeah, it's, I mean, the one group that has sort of very reliably supported Muslims and tried to fight against Islamophobia in the U.S., is like professors in academia and the care of Minnesota basically made an enemy out of those people or antagonized those people. It made it very hard for them to, to, uh, to kind of uh, align their work as scholars and uh, supporting Muslims. Any final words on this before we sign off? I mean, I would just say that, you know, I, one of the things I've noticed about Muslims discussing this stuff online is as usual, you know, people you need to have higher standards for the way they think about the world around them and and sort of process information. You know, the the kind of stuff that, you know, if I remember, you know, I wrote and I said online, like, this is not Islamophobic. This is not insulting to Islam or offense or, you know, insulting to Muslims. Mm -hmm. And people said, how can you how can you say it's OK to depict the prophet? I didn't say <laughs> that. they say, how can you say it's OK to show the Charlie Hebdo photos? That wasn't even in. The I didn't. Picture. Not only not, I didn't say that, and the professor didn't show them. I mean, so you know, people need to like uh, have just a modicum, the absolute bare minimum of ability to take in information, uh, assess it, analyze it, and then respond. Like they can't just, you know, it was like a theater of idiocy 
Uh, yes. And so many unfortunately, ways. this is, I mean, I know some of this is just the nature of like online kind of social media and stuff, but I think it, uh, a lot of Muslims show up on that and, and express themselves. And if they don't, and if they want to live up to the standards of their tradition and not embarrass themselves in front of others, they should really have higher standards for the way they interact. Absolutely. And I think that's the valuable takeaway from this entire discussion is that, as you had pointed out in significant detail, within our own tradition, there is so much diversity and it's not offensive. And so much of what has happened boils down to that complete ignorance of our own tradition. And then not only do we look like fools to the non-Muslims, but we're betraying our own tradition in so many ways. And the oversensitivity, the jumping to offense when there was neither offense intended, nor could it possibly be construed as such. It, again, just harmful for, to our own cause, betrays our tradition in so many ways, and is a symptom of the expectation that we are to be coddled and catered to at every, every step of the way. And that's just not how life is going to work, whether in university or elsewhere. So I hope the listeners benefited from this discussion as much as I did. Jazakallah khair for your time. Really appreciate it. I know you're quite busy and you've got classes coming up. So just want to tell you, thank you again for joining us and having My this great pleasure. conversation. My pleasure. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam Hey everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.